Welcome to Parent Talk Podcasts, where experienced parents and expert guests give tips and tricks on making parenting a breeze. Well, at least a little easier. Now here is your host, Genevieve Kyle, and co-host, Heather Fox. Hi everyone, and welcome to season four of Parent Talk, everything parenting and more. I'm your host, Genevieve Kyle, mom of two. I'm of course with my co-host, Heather Fox. Hi, Heather. Hi everyone. Yes, I am Heather Fox, co-host of Parent Talk and also a mom of two. So we are looking forward to another chance to learn and grow alongside our children. And of course, that means we have another fantastic guest today. Yes. So today we're talking about the Waldorf Academy philosophy and we're grateful to have with us Jennifer Deeth. And Jennifer is the enrollment director of the Waldorf Academy Childcare and School. Also, elementary school in Toronto. She is the mother of two children, an 18-year-old and a 20-year-old. Both children attended the Waldorf Academy. So she also has a first-hand knowledge of the value of this experience. So hi, Jennifer, and welcome to Parent Talk Podcast. Hi, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Pleasure to meet you both, Genevieve and Heather. This is fantastic work that you're offering parents. Oh, thank you so much. All right. I want to see all of us. So let's do it here. I put all of us on camera now. So Jennifer, first question for you today. Can you start by telling us a bit uh, about the Waldorf education method and uh, where and how it started and how is it different from other education philosophy and systems like Montessori? We hear a lot about the other ones and of course, the public um, education system. Okay, well, that's a lot. <laughs> yeah, it's a big question to start, right? Um, I mean, the most interesting thing about Waldorf education, I think, is that we just in 2020 celebrated our 100-year anniversary. What? Okay. One of the largest educational movements in the world. Um, there's over 150 Waldorf schools in North America, and that's not including the kindergarten and the child care centers. They have um, parent and child programs. Um, so it really is very exciting and it is global. It is around the world. We've, we're seeing a proliferation in places throughout Africa, throughout China. So it's very exciting because it's also holistic, which I think really makes that um, a really powerful message that more and more parents are seeking it out. Now, our school itself is 33 years old. So we're not 100 years old, but we are part of this movement. And it was great how it started because it was definitely parents who wanted it. There was a, there's another larger Walter school nearby, but parents downtown Toronto really wanted um, to stay in an urban center. And, you know, frankly, most of us, our children are going to grow up in urban places. So we're, how do you incorporate Walter elements typically associated with nature? But it's actually really quite easy to do in a city. So that just brings me to what is Waldorf education exactly? Well, it came actually out of Europe after World War I. Um, it, the philosopher Rudolf Steiner, he was a philosopher and he spoke on many topics. Biodynamic farming is also connected to his work. Um, there's anthroposophical medicine and education. Um, came almost sort of by accident because it was the owner of a cigarette factory, the Waldorf Cigarette Factory, who asked for an education for the factory workers. Um, it was really at a time of the Industrial Revolution. Uh, they had experienced you know, World War I and that devastation. So they were really looking at a more humane approach to education that incorporated 
not just sort of a factory-like view of education for the child, but that was holistic, that looked at child development, that placed an equal emphasis on the arts and music and nature and human relationships. And based out of that, they felt that human beings would um, achieve their destiny. So they, there is a spiritual component. A lot of people ask, oh, is you know, Waldorf religious? Um, no, it's not. There's, there's nothing taught that is spirit um, religious, but there are spiritual elements and a reverence for nature, but also that each of our children are divine and have a gift to offer. And we don't know what that gift is. We don't necessarily know what their destiny is, but we're going to do our best to provide this opportunity, this environment to remove any obstacles that might be there so that they can achieve it. And when you achieve that, when, when a child becomes who they, you know, whatever their destiny may be, in that you are going to create a more humane world because in they're just going to be able to see the other more clearly with empathy and with collaboration. So that is the basis of it. It's a, it's a very holistic approach. Um, head, hands and hearts is often a term you hear, but it's almost becoming a bit cliche. And um, so there's a, sort of some deeper components to it that make it different from other alternative models, but also similar because it is very child-centered. So a Montessori or a Reggio, both incredible programs, really taking a child-centered approach. And it really, it's just a matter of, of, of really what suits your family. Um, we place an emphasis, particularly in the early years on imagination and imitation. So that's how we base our whole early childhood approach. Uh, so within that, we would have the kindergarten rooms, for example, are very home-like. And we feel because children are imitating, that's how they're learning best. Whereas, and it's also very much a community-orientated uh, approach, as well with really connecting them to the cycles of the year and seasons and festivals to give them this sense of place. Like this is my community, this is my world, I belong here. So we'll tie in a lot of the teaching with, oh, it's, you know, it's uh, a lantern walk in November and there'll be a festival around that. And that will correlate with the days are getting shorter, the nights are getting longer. Um, you know, so they have this sense of timing throughout the year and the seasons, but then they'll also incorporate that into a gardening program where this is the time after harvest and now you're, you're putting straw in the garden. So then they'll incorporate songs and stories and on nature walks, they'll be, you know, allowing the children to see the changes in the seasons, which is really allowing for a foundation in observation that we can draw upon for science later on in the upper grades. So the, the other piece to that is there is this uh, imaginative imitative approach in the younger years. It's very experiential. You won't have children sitting down at a desk. They're, they're you know, they're baking bread for their snack. They're building um, incredible forts and structures out of really open-ended type toys. And I can go a bit into that a little bit later. Um, but all of that is specifically laying the foundations for the academics. And so that allows us, and I think a lot of people are quite surprised by this, that the moment we jump into grade one, we can jump right into the four operations of arithmetic, for example, whereas most schools would just be working with addition and subtraction. And there's a couple of reasons we can do that. We've laid the groundwork in the younger years for 
we really do see that childhood had this purpose in play and just in observing the world and interacting with people. Like that is incredible learning taking place right there. And so that when you come into grade one, they're really ready to learn. You know, and that's how you want them. You want them hungry for it. And you don't want to bring it too soon because when you bring it too soon, it's not that it's necessarily harmful, but it's just that it can be more of a memorization process rather than actually learning. So in some ways it's more economical uh, because you can get right to it when you bring these certain concepts at the right stage of child development. So with, for example, in grade one, going right into arithmetic and the four operations, they're gonna also bring it in an imaginative way. So you're gonna see children doing the three times tables in grade one, juggling bean bags to a song. So they're using left, right brain, motor cortex, um, and that just helps them retain it through their body. And then at the same time, there'll be a story that they're gonna tell that's also connected to it. So they'll personify, like it'll be, um, you know, king multiplication, for example, and they'll make characters out of it. And then they create their own textbooks as well. And so that's the way that we incorporate the arts and the music and that holistic approach into the learning that is more of an experiential approach, but it also allows you to go into these concepts much quicker. Although we didn't do anything on paper in terms of worksheets in the kindergarten. But if you, if you think about math though, like setting the table, baking bread, it's measuring, you're counting how many are there. It's more, it's less. So that's um, an aspect of, of the Waldorf philosophy. Um, some key differences I would say with Montessori, and it does change, is that number one, just as an organization, we belong to the Waldorf North American Association. It's actually called OSNAM. And then for the early childhood, it's called Weekend, the Waldorf Early Childhood Association. And in that we have to be accredited and we have to be nonprofit. So you won't find them at every street corner. It's quite a bit to get one up and going and you have certain principles that you have to follow. And then you're accredited every three years and you have membership dues. Um, so that's just an organizational difference. And then the other piece I would say is that, and it could be different. So I, I really gonna keep it really general, but that uh, Montessori might focus more on the individual learning. So it's independent work. You have your independent stations to go to and a teacher might be more, um, not removed, but in a place of observation and, um, and taking notes, but that's not necessarily the case in all of them. Whereas our teachers, because they know the children are looking at them as they're looking at us as parents and you know, up to age six, they're just like sponges. So although we want them to just do what we say, they're actually imitating every gesture we do. How are we greeting people? You know, they're absorbing everything. So our teachers are really aware of that. So they're gonna be modeling, um, how do you treat a friend? Um, how do you um, welcome guests into the classroom? They're gonna be working. They're gonna be you know, helping with the woodworking. They're gonna be helping with the gardening. So they're always doing something with their hands, with their voices, so the children can imitate them. And then the other piece to that, and this would be that spiritual component, is it's, it's really in mainstream, I would, I would call it critical reflection in teaching but the teachers do their own meditative practice so that when they arrive to school and face the children, they're present. You know, you have to kind of put everything else that's going on in your life and you have to be right there with the kids. 
you know, and as you know it as parents, um, they can tell when you're slightly off or when you don't have patience or you're tired. And there's nothing wrong with that, that's life. But as teachers, they, they only have them for a certain portion of the day. Um, so they, that's part of their practice that they'll do. And one of the practice, practices they do is they'll also imagine each child at the end of every day and kind of go back in their day. And it's a really great form of self-reflection and a meditative practice. All right. <laughs> so now Waldorf early childhood educators often refer to birth to seven years as the stage of imitation. So can you elaborate more on this and how it pertains to media use? Um, absolutely. Um, well, from birth to seven, in terms of the child's development, how they learn best, it's not the only way, but it really is through imitation. So they are watching us, our words, our gestures, how we're interacting. And so the teachers are very mindful of this. So they're gonna be very careful about their vocabulary. And so it becomes a great opportunity actually of really focusing on increasing the vocabulary with children because they'll imitate it. So nothing is dumbed down, for example, in terms of speaking with the children. Certainly not a baby voice, um, it's, it's full sentences and the children respond very well to that. In terms of media use, uh, children don't have a filter yet. So our kindergarten teachers, for example, they can see if a child has consumed a lot of media because they'll start to see it in their play. And so one of the things we encourage is to really limit the media, you know, if possible, because what that allows for is the child's own incredible creativity to emerge. So even when they tell stories, they'll have memorized them and they'll tell them orally. And then you'll see the child work with it later on in their own imaginative way. Whereas if you have a movie or a picture book and, there, and there's nothing wrong with that, it's just that now that image has been created for them. Mm -hmm. So in certain Do you ways, mean when you mean media, do you include TV? What's, what's media? Yeah, for example, yeah, it could be TV, anything to do with screens. And, and even yeah. if you think of books with explicit um, images, and I don't mean in a negative way, but for example, if you take Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, and if you tell that to a child, just orally, you know, you're sitting in a circle, maybe you have some puppets. Um, you can imagine, if, especially if you look at the Grimm's fairy tales, that, you know, the, the hunter taking the heart, cutting the heart out could be really horrific for a young child to imagine and, ter and be terrifying. But if they don't have any pictures for it, they're only gonna imagine what they're capable of imagining. Um, and so what we see in terms of the opposite effect of that is if a child has seen a lot of violence, for example, or something that they don't understand, it's been too adult, which a, a lot of the media is, you'll see it in their play. And so a kindergarten teacher, um, they won't shut it down because it's really important that a child processes what they've observed somewhere else because they're imitating it from somewhere. And we all know it's not from someone's home, but, <laughs> but you know, you have like, there's um, older siblings, there's all, all kinds of um, influences everywhere. Like the children see images in media, no matter where you go. And um, they're going to pick up on it. And sometimes we're just not aware of how much is out there. But the children are so sensitive to it. And they take it in. And some more so than others. And so what a kindergarten teacher might do is instead of having, you know, 
incredible, let's say violent gunplay taking place in the classroom and other kids are afraid and whatnot. Um, it's not shaming that child in any way at all because there's something they're processing and they're just a child. But what they might do is when they move out into the ravine area or the yards, the larger yards say, okay, if you wanna play that, you go in that section. And for other children, they can join you. But for others, they're over here. So it allows that process to take place. Um, so that's one of the ways that we would look at media and um, how it can impact the child and through imitation is what, it, what is happening. And some children, you know, are, um, you don't see it as much, but it is there. And uh, it comes out at different times. Sometimes it's not immediate. Sometimes it can just pop up. And um, so that's one of the reasons why we would say, you know, be really aware of the impact on media. Um, the other thing is, is that children need to move. And movement is definitely connected to neural pathways and brain, healthy brain development for those academics later. So a child needs to be able to, um, you know, that's why we have the gardening because it's, they're lifting, they're moving wheelbarrows, they're digging, so it's a sensory experience, but they're also like balancing and carrying things. And, you know, even, you know, sweeping a floor is really interesting because you're doing things that cross, we're gonna get into a bit of um, brain development, but you're crossing a horizontal and vertical midlines, which are really important. So, because um, it's that left right brain. And the more that you can have associated with those kind of activities. So even when a kindergarten teacher um, or in the childcare center sets up, we do watercolor painting, they'll be holding the paintbrush, but the paint is over here. So they're dipping, they're crossing um, over. And also that's eye tracking. And that's also pencil grip. So there's a lot of thought that goes into what looks kind of like an old fashioned setup in the kindergarten classrooms that's actually preparing the kids for these activities later on in, in grade one and up. Mm, and that's totally actually starting my next question for you. So can you explain and describe an environment um, that offers uh, that uh, the opportunity for self-directed play and why is it important for child's development? Um, absolutely. So yeah, our spaces are set up with items that encourage self-directed play. And so self-directed play is, it's kind of like not giving everything to a child, you know, on a silver platter. It's, you're, you're wanting them to work it a bit and because then it's going to have them work their imagination, their social skills, um, even self-regulation. Because if you have um, an environment that, for example, our dolls are known for being kind of, um, they're, they're soft, there's many skin colors, but there's no facial expression, just kind of a, an indent. And the reason that is, is if you have a doll with a, always a smile, that's what that doll is. But if you have it a little bit open-ended, we would say, then that doll could be sad. It could be like, it can imitate what the child is feeling in their play. And if you have a lot of wood pieces, all different sizes, um, you definitely have to watch out for slivers, but it's incredible what they come up with, but they're gonna have to negotiate with their um, classmates. They're also gonna have to figure out, um, you know, like it's always building up those incredible towers. They're like little engineers, but you know, things aren't matched perfectly. So they're gonna struggle a bit. 
They're going to have to figure it out. It's going to fall. So you're building resilience with it. Um, even outside, it's, um, you know, as long as you have the elements there, you know, you got the good gear on, but there's opportunities for maybe finding sticks. That's why nature walks are so great for families. They'll figure it all out. Like if you've ever watched children out in nature, they come up with all kinds of games and ideas and the teachers don't have to do too much. So in terms of creating um, a space for that, oh, the other thing we always have too, we always have our kitchen area. And what I love when I've popped into the kindergarten classes, you know, I've seen kids in there with uh, the construction gloves on, but they're cooking. <laughs> Like there's just all kinds of hilarious combinations that start to come out. Um, and then they have really incredible rules that they'll come up with. And especially if they've seen a puppet show that the teacher has done and they'll just repeat the same puppet show for two weeks because you'll see how the ch child plays with that in their play by creating their own plot, their own narrative. Um, then they'll have everyone sit down and be the audience. So you're gonna see who's those older children work with the younger children. And then the other piece around creating a space that offers that self-directed play is it works for multiple ages. So a three-year-old, you know, they're gonna see the doll in the high chair and they're gonna go to feed it. But the five-year-old is gonna have nothing to do with it. They're gonna, you know, flip everything on its side. And of course, they're gonna have to share being the co-pilot. So you might have five co-pilots of a, some sort of ship that they've created. Um, so that's how we work with self-directed play. And it's actually really great to set up at home as well. So, you know, even for a lot of families, you know, media becomes what we hope is a, a time for, so you can make dinner. It's, um, it keeps them occupied, but sometimes it, that doesn't last for long. So if you have certain spaces that offer that self-directed play, you get that much more out of it because they won't get as bored as quickly. You know, it's not simply put the, the, um, blue ball in the blue circle, you know, kind of thing, and lights flash off. You're developing um, a much richer play that will last longer. And it's even okay to, you know, if they're bored for a bit, they, just, they have to wait it out. And that's actually an important part for five-year-olds in their development. It's quite natural. And so what we would do in the classroom with the five-year-old who's maybe bored with creating some imaginative land, we might give them then specific tasks to do. Like you can help chop vegetables for the soup. Um, we have all kinds of handwork activities or, you know, woodworking um, is another great example, even in small spaces. But if you were to go on a nature walk, let's say, and you find a branch, um, a tool that's really great to have at home is it's called a rasp. And all it does is it just kind of peels the bark off. So it makes it kind of smooth. But children will sit <laughs> for such a long time with that branch across rasping the bark off. And then you can then do other projects to make it a decorative walking stick by, you know, adding beads or um, carving with, you know, assistance on it. So that's um, another example of self-directed play that could be used at home in anyone's home. This doesn't have to be in a Waldorf school only. Absolutely can take place at home. And I'm sure a lot of parents intuitively have sensed that as well. And um, so it's just knowing that there are these resources out there for you as well to get more ideas. So what can parents do to facilitate a more harmonious experience at home during this time, this crazy COVID time, or really any time? Um, we hear a lot about rhythm and routine. 
Yes, rhythm and routine are the key all the way through our, our programs, even in the upper grades. And it's interesting because a lot of people think that um, Waldorf is this free play approach, but it's actually not at all. We give free play for a certain amount of time in the day. But if you go too long, there's gonna be all kinds of challenges because children can't regulate themselves that long. Um, and of course, in the grade school, we have clear structures and, and periods for different subject matter as well. So rhythm and routine at home will absolutely save you, <laughs> especially during this time. And you know, make a beautiful schedule. There's samples of Waldorf when it works really well. And the basis behind the rhythm and routine is once it's consistent, and, and that's how it is for children. When they walk in, they don't necessarily know it's Monday, but when they see certain signs like red placemats out or a smell, they're like, oh, it's bread baking day and watercolor painting day. And when a child knows that without an adult even having to tell them, what you've done is reduced anxiety. Like a lot of kids need to know what's happening. And transitions are also really hard. So if you have a, you know, a routine that you feel comfortable with and suits your family style, um, that can really help alleviate transitions, negotiations, because they know what's happening. And then the other um, sort of framework I would have for routine and rhythm is we have what is called um, activities that we would describe as a breath in and a breath out. So breath in would be all of those fine motor activities, um, you know, more uh, working with their hands, artistic activities, more focused at a, at a table. And then your breath out is that free play or time outside um, for outdoor play. You know, they're really running around and um, more vigorous activities. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of the flow you want because all of those can't be sustained for too long. And then also we do break it up with snacks and lunches. And then the other piece that we do is um, if you have your, you know, it's tricky around snacks and meals for a lot of families, but you can get so much out of them if you have sort of a clear kind of process, you know, for how, and maybe it's different, like maybe it's more formal at dinner, um, but maybe there's a chore that your child can start to do. Like you can start to build up these skills also for contributing. And then the other piece that we do with routine and rhythm in the younger years is sometimes it's not our voices necessarily. It might be a little song to transition, or maybe it's like a, you know, a little bell or, or they'll suddenly know because you brought out something and you're humming a particular song as you also tidy up. Because the other piece to routine and rhythm is having too much stimulation. So if you, for example, have, you know, a massive toy room with so many choices, it's really hard for that child. Um, they just don't have the ability to regulate themselves and focus. Whereas if you have a few items out and then the others are tucked away. I never quite managed that in my own house, but I really admired the kindergarten classrooms for it. And so there's a clear space where everything goes and they always put you know, a curtain over top of it. And so then when they go into circle activities, they're not distracted by everything else. Um, the other, an environment is so important, having you know, natural light. Um, we would fill the classrooms with 
with their artwork or we'd have a nature table if you've been out on a hike or just um, you know around the neighborhood maybe your child found a treasure and there's a special little table to put it so having a place for things um, can really help with that routine and rhythm as well maybe making it out a schedule and the other oh what's also really great too is um it doesn't have to be multiple stories all the time that you might tell your child they're fine with they love it when you just repeat it again and again and it's more our adult adult brains that are like okay i'm kind of bored of telling this story again and again but they're fine with it and so our teachers will keep the same story for basically two weeks that they have it and then they might have you know a story one day but then maybe it's more um music related activities the next day and it's really easy to model at home there's incredible resources for it as well all right now jennifer i want to talk about sleeps and naps right so tell us more about the significance of an afternoon nap in your programs for young children absolutely sleep you know it's it's something that we are not good at as a society we're all sleep deprived and there's a lot of reasons Um, for that. But if we just look at the younger years, um, most people understand in terms of toddlers and preschools, they're going to have um, an afternoon nap. But even in our kindergarten programs, we have a, a nap as well. Now, the older child may not nap fully, but I'll tell you why it's really important. The morning, the children are so busy learning, like they really are taking in so much. It's incredible. And we should never Uh, diminish that. It, it's really what is why we have evolved as we have as a species. It's, it's childhood is incredible. What they are learning from zero to six is astounding. You know, from the crawling to the standing to, to learning to speak is incredible. Um, and then all of the social mores that they're picking up. So with that, if you really can respect and honor, you know, what a child is doing in the morning, you can imagine They need time in the afternoon to process. And that's what's actually happening while they're napping. Their brain is processing all that they've been learning in the morning. So for us, sleep is really key um, in the afternoon. We do hear from parents who are like, oh, but if you have my child nap, it's going to take forever to get them to sleep. But part of that is we have to really just look at our routines when we pick them up and, and how do we prepare them for bed? Um, so there, you have that nap in the afternoon and we don't go for um, longer periods. Like in the kindergarten, it'll be an hour and that child who doesn't sleep, they just have to um, lie alone. They might have their stuffy or a book, but it gives them a chance. You know, they've been in the social environment all day. And they have just quiet them... time. Do you guys call it quiet time too? Yeah, sometimes? exactly. And they're just we, gonna... we, we call it quiet time at home. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's just quiet time and everyone just gets a chance to kind of recalibrate. And then after half an hour, they can do quiet activities, but other ones will sleep. And so what we work with parents is if you, again, it's that rhythm and routine. So it's like from dinner. And then what are you doing after dinner? It's, you can signal it in terms of um, activities. Maybe it starts to really wind down that hour before I mean, it can be tricky because I know a lot of families are now getting their kids to bed like at six. You know, that's what my sister did with her children at, you know, at age two and three, they were going to bed at six. I don't know if you've ever come across that as a new I, I, approach. I've been able to do this, but I would love to talk to her. <laughs> 
Yeah, the sleep 12 hours. It's incredible. But if I go back to my time, it would be mm. more like eight o'clock or, you know, 730. So you really want to signal that in, in terms of maybe getting pajamas on, or maybe it's a warm bath. And we used to have a, a bedtime um, snack that we learned this routine from Sharifa Oppenheimer, who wrote a wonderful book on childhood and creating your own family culture. And what I liked about it is she, there's a lot of text to read, but then she'd have the sidebars with, here's the menu, here's the routine. And I was great, check. Like, I just don't have time to read the text right now. And so one of it was about bed like that. It was, I remember it was warm cinnamon, honey toast and warm milk. And my kids still remember it. And that would signal, you know, it was time to go to bed. I think there's something in milk that might make them sleepy too. Um, and then the, the other piece as well is really be careful about how much you're putting into the bedtime routine with the choices of books. So, you know, you don't want them to be so adventurous that they're excited and they can't get to sleep. And also you only have to read one and maybe even try just telling one orally, which can be really tricky, especially with some really precocious kids, because they're going to wait, but you didn't say that last time. <laughs> you know, they get you on the details, um, but it's really fun to try and create your own stories um, to go to bed. And so I'd say be that one story, keep it really simple. And you really want them to get used to falling asleep on their own. And that's how you develop healthy sleep habits. Because if you have them dependent on you know, everyone being absolutely silent or a noisemaker, which believe me, whatever it takes for parents to get a good night's sleep, I 100% support. But it's just as you think about it, as they progress, because that will lead into sleeping habits all the way through the school and getting their homework and getting up in the morning as well, like have certain items laid out for them to make those mornings successful, to get them at the door. Cause some kids have a really hard time with that transition because it, it can lead to, and this is where we're all suffering with our devices. Like I would absolutely have no screen time. I think they, the American pediatrics might say, um, you know, in terms of their limitations on the younger children, but even as you're older, it, it could be maybe two hours prior to going to bed because of all the, of that blue light is really stimulating. Um, and then as they get older, this is what you're gonna have to look for down the road. Uh, when they get that cell phone, then suddenly they're gonna need the music to fall asleep. And then at grade six, they're gonna be texting at one in the morning. And it's just this whole Pandora's box. So I've given you some great tips for when your kids get older. <laughs> I know, I like it. <laughs> <laughs> Plan it now. I like it, I like it. <laughs> That's awesome. So now can you tell us a bit about how dinner time is such a great time that we can create these wonderful opportunities to create and support from learning to be responsible and of course, dinner table conversation, family values and all that good stuff. Do you want to elaborate a little more on that? Absolutely. At dinner time is one of my most favorite conversations. And it's not easy. But if you can look at the layers of creating dinner, um, as I'm sure you know, I mean, it's incredible what women do or our caregivers do to prepare meals. Um, but if we think about it in these layers, it actually can become this incredible learning activity and an opportunity to develop your own family culture. What's really important is, for children today is we're all busy. You know, we've all got our devices on us, but children need to be seen. 
it, it makes such a difference to who they are going to become. And, you know, dinner time is that perfect time, like really make sure it's um, screen free at the dinner time. And also if you think beforehand, there's planning involved and there's menus. So you can create really wonderful, maybe themes, especially at this time um, when we're seeing a lot of really anti-Asian racism, um, you know, even looking at Black Lives Matter. These are all opportunities to bring different cultural um, meals into your family as well. So there could be certain theme nights. Um, so there's planning, there's the menu, a child could participate in that, um, you know, maybe setting up the menu for the week, or maybe they have a favorite meal that they like. And then there's the task of setting the table which again is helping with numeracy skills, you know, just, you know, one, two, it might only be, you know, four, three, two people, but just, you know, thinking about that, but you're also building up a task that's really easy for them to do. And it might take a bit longer for everything to get done, but if there, if this is the end game, that's okay. Um, it does change later, of course, when everyone has different activities and it might be soccer later after school. But the idea is that if you have your child participate, they may know that this is their task that they do. And then the other piece, aside from, you know, in our kindergarten, our children, they chop, they peel vegetables. Again, that can take a longer time. So maybe it's not every um, aspect, but maybe on the Friday night, it's helping roll out the dough for a pizza night. And maybe you have your friends, um, they have, you have a pizza night with friends come over and there's topping. So it can be a great social event as well. Um, and then the other piece that's really that we do in the in the kindergarten and in the toddler programs is we always light a candle and there's a blessing of gratitude, whatever that may be, you know, thanking you know, Mother Earth or thanking whoever has, has put this meal together. So what you're doing is planting a seed of reverence and gratitude and then sitting at a table eating. It is an opportunity, especially for children going um, into kindergarten from three to four, they're learning about social manners, um, how to feel included. And this is a great time to model how to have a conversation. Um, and then it's also just great to hear your child develop their speech and how they communicate and converse, as well as, um, you know, just that time with the family, it goes by very, very quickly. And pretty soon it's going to get so busy. So those dinners will be really magical moments to remember. And it, it, as I said, it's not every night, like maybe it's just a, a few nights a week because, you know, everyone has also incredible long hours. And I know for a lot of families, they might have to have the children eat earlier. But it's just something to think about it because it's also a great opportunity for your child to share something that might have happened because that's what happens is, Sometimes they might see something that confused them, or maybe they even got hurt, or there's just something that um, they want to share with you. And it may not come that day, it might come a week later. And so just having that space um, for that to come up, I think will yield incredible rewards for the family. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Jennifer, so many and beautiful information. We can find you on our panel of experts at parenttalk.ca. Where else can we find you? 
Um, well, you can find us. We're, I'm all over the Waldorf Academy website yes. and we have a blog. We also have a Waldorf Academy Instagram and a Facebook page. And on our blog, we also offer so many resources and articles that you can take into your home. Um, as well as links to other resources. And then we also offer speaker series that are open to the community. We get in guest speakers that aren't you know, necessarily Waldorf, but we'll have social workers come in to talk about the mental health. And these, we always try to open them up to the community as well. And so that, that would be the best place on the waldorfacademy.org website. Awesome, awesome. Wow, beautiful places. And, and this is open for anyone, if I'm understanding right, right? Yeah, most of our events and activities that we set up are open to the public. Awesome, great. So, well, Heather and I would like to thank you, Jennifer, for taking the time to be here and bring so much value to all of us parents, helping us grow and be the best parents we can be. Thank you, Genevieve and Heather. It's been a pleasure to be on Parent Talk. And I do want to point out that there is a Waldorf school in Vancouver as well, and they probably have parent and child programs too. Yes, I have actually heard about this and I'm happy you're mentioning this because I actually forgot to mention it earlier. Thank you so much for saying this. Yeah, so if you hear this, you're in Vancouver. Yes, you go on. I guess people can just go on the website, Jennifer. They will. Well, Vancouver Waldorf. Yeah. So for our listeners, if you have a question or you would like to join us on our show as a guest or as an expert, please visit the contact us section on our website at parenttalk.ca. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and now also on YouTube at Parent Talk TV. Of course, you can always subscribe directly to this podcast on our website at parenttalk.ca. We hope you enjoyed today's episode and we're inviting you to share it on social media. As we all know, parenting can be hard. So remember, it's important to laugh, keep learning, cherish your village and be true to yourself. Thank you for joining us today and have a great week. Bye. The views and or opinions of the host and their guests are not necessarily those of Parent Talk and should not be considered as fact. The information offered is believed to be accurate but is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice and should not be used for diagnosing or treating any health issue or prescribing medication. If you have any questions or concerns regarding your physical or mental health or the health of your child, please seek assistance from a qualified healthcare practitioner. Thank you.